You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. This morning, so an expansive and mighty empire whose reach and influence had stretched to the farthest ends of the known world. It was truly the world's first superpower, backed by the best equipped and trained military force in history, vast wealth and resources responsible for stunning accomplishments and achievements in politics, arts, architecture, infrastructure, and entertainment. However, this great and mighty empire was already starting to show the signs of the stress fractures that would eventually lead to its downfall. Despite all of its wealth and power, it was simply stretched too thin. A series of costly and protracted wars on foreign soil, the complexities of governing a multi-ethnic, multicultural citizenry, this empire had already began cracking under the weight of division and conflict. And in the middle of all of this was this new and vulnerable movement of people, a people who had come to believe that their God sent his long and awaited promised Messiah in the person of Jesus. They were a numerical minority and simply did not fit into the majority culture wherever they found themselves. That is the conflict and the culture that Peter writes this letter into. He writes to all of these churches throughout Asia Minor and he exhorts them. You go all the way to the to chapter 5, verse 12, he exhorts them to be on guard, to stand firm, and he's encouraging them because the, the, the problems out there Peter is going to address shouldn't be the problems in here. The conflicts out there shouldn't create conflict in the church. What divides the world should never divide the church. When the world is losing its mind, Peter will say, the church should remain faithful. So Peter's writing this letter into the chaos of that tension. And what's his advice? What's his encouragement to his readers? Does he give them a strategic plan to wage war on the encroaching culture around them? Does he give them a blueprint for separatist living? Not at all. Instead, he tells them to be most concerned with their inner life their spiritual life, both as individuals and as a community. He reminds them and encourages them with who they were and what they have in Christ. He's, he's, he's encouraging and exhorting them to put courage into them. Like That's what that word means, to put courage into someone. So what's the courage that Peter's called the audience of his letter to? What's well, not to arm up and fight, rather it's to be sober-minded, to walk in humility, to be gentle and respectful, to be a people who would remain steadfast, stand firm, and follow Jesus, not the world. So as we get to our passage today, Peter does not deny or, or simply explain away the reality of pain and brokenness and suffering. In fact, he's basically saying that, that what you get from the world is pain and suffering. But that pain and suffering is temporary compared to eternity. And it, 
and it fails to compare to the rich blessings that come from trusting and following Jesus. So there's, there's joy. He's going to point his readers to hope in the midst of suffering. And that joy is an invitation to transcend whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, not to escape them per se. Rather, it's an invitation to dive deep into the mercies and the grace of God, to grow and mature in our faith, because that joy is forged not in the suffering, but in the promises of God. So let's just jump in, and we're going to walk through these verses. Before we do, let me pray one more time. Father, we come humbly before you, and we stand before the truth of your gospel. And we live in the riches and the glory of your kingdom, and we desire that this morning as we hear what Peter wrote to these churches that were spread throughout Asia Minor to encourage these believers. I pray that we would, we would grow deeply from it. We would be transformed through it. We would be encouraged today. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, so this passage real quick, like these 10 verses in the original language, man, they are the stuff of English teachers' nightmares, right? So when we read it in English, we add like grammatical rules and structure so that we can understand it, like punctuation to create sentences. But more importantly, because that's, that's not what, what the original language is formed, um, it, it really is one like long run-on sentence, right? So the whole thing, this whole doxology that Peter writes here, and that's probably the most important thing about it, is that it is a doxology, right? So those first two verses that we looked at last week, Peter just employs deep and rich theology, and that's followed up with this doxology, which is simply this. It's a hymn of prayer or praise, and it serves this doxology, as we'll see through the rest of the letter. This actually serves as an outline, for the themes and the ideas that he's going to bring out through the rest of the letter. So Peter wants his readers to understand that there is a deep connection between their present suffering and their oppression and to the suffering and glories of Jesus. And he calls them to live as set-apart strangers to this world, to live out their unique identity as God's people. And he's going to utilize these themes of hope, and new birth and salvation and the return of the second or the second coming of Christ. And all of those themes are contained in this beautifully complex and rich and stunning doxology that we're looking at today. Peter is going to draw his audience to awe and worship in these verses, but only after he's revealed to them their unique identity as strangers and sojourners in a world and culture that is proven to be hostile to them. So he's rooted them in their, their standing in God's predetermined love for them in their election that God chose them. He, he's securing them in the truth that the cause of their great salvation is not of them, but solely grounded in the triune God who calls them and who is keeping them. Peter wants his readers to join him, not just in reading this letter, but to join him in this great chorus of praise and worship to God while he's assuring them of who they are in Christ. So let's just walk through this here, and we'll start back in verse 3. So blessed, um, as we get to that word, we're going to unpack it, but, but in the original language, it's, 
where we would get our, 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 our word eulogy, right? Which just simply means praise to. So in a sense, Peter is eulogizing God the Father of Jesus Christ here. So here's what we need to see. The connection is this. You go back to verses 1 and 2, and we get this rich theology, which always leads to doxology, right? Which should lead to worship. And so Peter begins to bless and praise God. It's so obviously fitting because it's rooted in the theology of salvation that he stated very simply in those first two verses that we looked at last week. And he moves on. He says, according to his great mercy. So he's going to begin to talk about this transformation that occurs in the life of a follower of Jesus. And that transformation that his original audience is experiencing as followers of Jesus is all because of the rich mercy of God. The mercy of God becomes a very prominent theme as you go through the Old Testament, particularly as it relates to God's covenant relationship with his people. So the Exodus story, right? Time and time again, we hear this phrase that God is rich in his mercy, right? He's slow to act. He remains faithful. And it's because of this mercy that he has towards his people. And, and Paul writes even about this mercy that God has on tap. It's never ending. And he, he says that this mercy is transformative. And he writes about this in, in his letter to the church in Ephesus. He says in chapter 2, verse 4 and 6, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So that mercy becomes this catalyst for our great transformation of being made alive to Christ, no longer dead in our sin. And what we need to see is that God is great in his mercy. And what Peter means by that is he is not miserly with his mercy. He's never withholding with his mercy. He's got this mercy on unending tap and he pours it out on his people, which leads to the transformation of their hearts and minds and souls. So let's look at what this transformation then looks like. What does this transformation bring? And he says, he has caused us to be born again. So first, we have to just stop and pause and recognize that Peter is telling us, he's telling his readers that everything that this transformation, everything that comes with it, everything that it brings, it does not originate from anything of your own efforts because God has caused us to be born again. So he uses that unique phrase, to be, to be born again, right? That phrase in the original language is wholly unique to Peter's letter. It's not used anywhere else in the New Testament or in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so it's unique to his letter, nowhere else in the scripture. But that's not the only place where the Bible speaks about this concept of new birth. Pop quiz, like where else would we hear this like born again or new birth language, right? Anybody know? John, John chapter 3, right? There's this story of Jesus' interaction with this guy, Nicodemus, right? And he comes to Jesus and he's trying to figure all of this out. Like, who is this Jesus guy? And Jesus tells him, the guy's like, well, what do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, you have to be born again, which is a weird thing to say to an adult human, right? Like, that's not something that we normally do again, right? We don't like like you may go on a water slide and be like, that was super fun. I'll do that again, right? But we're, not, we're, we're never like, hey, being born was fun. Let me, let me do that again. One that would just really lead to a really weird conversation with our moms. But so it's this weird concept. Like, what is he talking about? Well, well, 
Well, Jesus, when he has this interaction with Nicodemus, he's probably more than likely, at least what was so rooted deeply in him is this this faithful knowledge of the scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. And he's probably pulling out this reference to the prophet Ezekiel. And he uses this, like Ezekiel has this like crazy, compelling, like kind of piece that that really ties in. And it's in chapter 36, verses 25 through 26. And just kind of listen to the language here. It's transformative. Um, it's, it, it, it does speak to like, like a new birth. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all of your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You see how all of that language is about like new birth, like something new is happening. And so I think Jesus takes this little passage from Ezekiel and he just ties it down to like born again. And, and, and then, and then Peter's talking about this new birth. And, and I think he's talking about like this transformation, this new spirit within you, this new heart that's meant to beat towards the things of God. So Ezekiel combines water and spirit together in this process, right? That produces this spiritual cleansing, but also this transformation by the Holy Spirit. Like you are something new. You are something that you were not after this process occurs. And then Peter also embeds, right? And this is, gets a little lost on us, but as we read through Peter's letter, we're, we're going to see all of this because he's, he begins to embed all of this language throughout there. And he embeds this implied message to his readers because new birth suggests this. New birth suggests that, that you now have a new family, right? And, and as Jesus followers, we become a part of a new family through God's great mercy. And Peter wants his readers to see that by following Jesus, you've now inherited a lot more people than you had to begin with, right? And he subtly includes all of this like familial language all throughout this letter. There's, there's speak of like children and father and birth and inheritance. And, and this would have been so hope-filled for his original lead, readers. We, we talked about this last week, but, but so many of them would have been facing ostracization from their family. They would have been kicked out. They would have been oppressed even in some situations, right? And so he's writing to his, his, this audience and he's saying like, no matter what you're facing, like no matter what's happening, no matter how helpless you feel and hopeless you are, you have a new family that's going to come alongside you. No matter how isolated you are now from your, your other social circles, you now have this new family that will come alongside you. And like, they're going to just get you, right? Because they've also been transformed through this same process. They're new as you are new, and they'll walk with you through these burdens that you're facing. So look what he says next. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the result of this new birth is that you now get this living hope, right? So let's first distinguish how Peter is using the word hope here from how we most often use it today. So we had a discussion about this in our hub community this last Thursday. It was really good, a really great conversation, which is why you should join a hub community, by the way, like cheap kind of plug there for it. I like what uh, a couple of our people, it took two of us to source like what we mean when we most commonly refer to, to hope. 
like it's this abstract sense of like optimism, which is not bad at all, right? So, so two of our people source this definition. It's an, it's an uncertain desire, right? You're, you're placing your hope in this like really uncertain desire. Like you don't know that it's actually going to happen, but you're optimistically putting your hope in the future that maybe this will happen. Like, just think about this. Like, like how many of y'all right now just hope that someday COVID will be over? Like raise your hand, right? If you all are like, if there's one of you in this room, like, no, I'm really liking this, then we've got a whole nother conversation, right? Or maybe this, like, I hope the Beavers will win a national championship and a quote from Jesse's sermon in sports or whatever someday, right? Like that's this like uncertain desire you're expressing. Now, there's nothing wrong with expressing that, but the hope that Peter is talking about is different. It's this confident expectation that God's good work will always be true right? That the certainty that God will do in the future everything that he says he will do. And Peter points out then this other distinction about the hope that we would hold on to as followers of Jesus, and that's that it's a living hope. That's a weird phrase. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is the foundation of any and all hope that we have as followers of Jesus. And because Jesus has been raised from the dead and is alive today, we have a living and lasting hope inseparably related to the resurrection of Jesus. That's what Peter ties it into, right? You have this living hope that you've been born again to and that's come through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead right? Because it's grounded in the reality that when God raised his son from the dead, he raised him to be among the firstborn of many. And that means that everyone that follows Jesus will share in that resurrection life with Christ. We've been born again, and and not just to have a better quality in this life, in this world right now, not simply born again to give us a second chance, but we're born again to this living hope that produces in us this life, this essence of life that will go on forever, sustained by the power of the resurrection of Jesus, right? Now think about how encouraging that would be to people that will eventually potentially like lose their life because of the confession of faith. Like I'm, I'm saying that I'm following Jesus. I'll probably lose my life because of that, but I have this living hope that this will no longer be the end because of this new birth that, that Christ has caused in me. Let's keep jamming verses five and six here because there's, there's more. Like as if this living hope was not enough, he speaks to this. He says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Right? A lot going on there. Peter's going to reference this end time, this last time. What's that about? There's salvation in there. But he starts with this inheritance, right? And he's gently and lovingly encouraging his readers many of whom, again, had lost their family, um, which also means this in that culture. See, like inheritance probably doesn't strike like a deep chord with us. Some of us might stand to receive some type of inheritance from our family. It might be like an old pocket knife or an old car that doesn't run, right? But for, for his readers, this, in, this word inheritance would have meant everything. To be outside of your family inheritance meant that you may not even survive, 
this. You may not live through this. And so he's saying, like, well, here's this inheritance that because you follow Jesus, you may have lost your physical inheritance, but let me point you to something far greater than that. You may have lost land and title and family rights, and that disinheritance for them, that would have led to shame and insecurity and hopelessness for them. Now he's encouraging that while they may have lost their earthly inheritance because they are following Jesus, they will receive an inheritance from their heavenly Father. Now notice Peter does not tell us exactly what the inheritance is, just that it's a part of this living hope that you receive from God causing your transformation and new birth. So despite not actually telling us precisely what it is, he tells us readers what it's not. He says it's not imperishable, it's not undefiled, and it's not unfading. So imperishable, and they all have the same like root, root word in, in the Greek. So imperishable, right? That just means it's freedom from death and decay. So we try our best to make something in this world that is not imperishable. Think Twinkies, right? Which, by the way, I did a deep dive into Twinkies yesterday and found a scathing expose about the urban myth about the shelf life of Twinkies. It is, in fact, only 25 years, which is far too long for any baked good, right? It does have real food substances in it, but that's an attempt to create something that should always be perishable. Like, like, would you eat a pie that was 25 days old? No, right? So we've got this thing, Twinkie. That's an attempt to make something here that is imperishable, right? That will never suffer death and decay. And then he goes on to, to this undefiled language, which carries the sense of freedom from uncleanness or moral purity, right? How many of y'all um, enjoy a bag of snap peas, right? So I, I, we do. We eat a lot of snap peas in our house. And I'll go into that grocery store and I'll like look through every single bag and I'm, I'm like flipping it and twisting it. I'm like, this is going to be the one, the one bag of snap peas that is undefiled, from that one that is just already moldy, right? And without fail, there's just that one that's just already started to get that mold on it. So like, we don't know anything really that is undefiled, right? And then unfading. Unfading means freedom from the natural decay and the ravaging of time. Like, like what is unfading for us? My, my father-in-law attempts this, right? He's probably got about 20 pairs of the same 501 jeans, right? And if you go into his closet and look in there, here's what you're going to see. All of those 501 jeans are, are laid out. They're like hanging in, in order as to like the oldest to the newest. So the newest are the like crisp, like deep blue 501s. But these down here, they're, they're a little bit more faded, right? And so, so Paul is saying, or Peter is saying, hey, none of that is what you get in this inheritance, it, it is free from death and decay. So, so this inheritance is not Twinkies, right? It's undefiled, meaning there's nothing corruptible in it. It's, it's clean. It's, it's morally pure. It's not like that bag of snap peas. And it's unfading, unlike a pair of 501s, right? It will never see natural decay or the ravages of time. So while Peter doesn't give this specific definition of like what it is, Here's what I believe it is. We're going to look at this a little bit later. I think he's saying that this inheritance is the completion of our salvation, right? That might rock us a little bit because we're like, well, I was saved back here, right? And so we, we look at what salvation is and, and most of us go like, it's this point where I made this confession and Christ saved me. But, but we are being saved today. Peter talks about that. We're in the process of being saved in our sanctification. So salvation is currently happening to us. And there is this point that there will be this completion to what 
us being saved means. So, so we're in that process, right? Which, which means this. Currently today, as we're being sanctified, those of us that are followers of Jesus, the, the simplest way to think about this is that we are day after day progressively being freed from the power of sin over our existence. But we'll see the completion of our salvation in glorification where we will be fully and finally freed from sin's presence. We will experience then the full benefits of life in God's shalom-filled kingdom where we will be free to enjoy worshiping him and praising God. And so the amazing thing is that same power from God that keeps that inheritance reserved for us is the power that keeps us reserved for that inheritance. It's the power of God that keeps us to receive the full and final measure of our salvation. So, which, which should be a deep encouragement to his readers. That word salvation that Peter uses, it, it's a, has a broad sense, it has, has a sense used outside of religion, which is just like being saved from any threat. And, and so in some ways, Peter's saying like, in the fullness of your salvation, which is what some of this inheritance means. Yes, you'll be, you'll be freed finally. You'll be saved from any physical threat. Obviously, the New Testament goes on and, and, and means so much more, and Peter means so much more than just salvation from a physical threat. But, but for his readers, it works on both levels. It would have been a deep comfort and encouragement to him as it should be to us. So I want to I do this. I want to I flip to the book of Hebrews, right? Because there's this thing that Peter's doing in his readers, right? And he's getting to, which is, which is this, like he's giving them this eternal perspective, right? It's hard for us to free ourselves from the reality of being bound to this earthly reality and time. And so it really kind of starts to like mess with our brain a little bit when we start thinking about something being imperishable, something never fading. And so, so Peter's trying to give his readers this eternal perspective so that whatever they're facing currently doesn't weigh them down, doesn't cause them to be unfaithful to the promises that they've made to God. So the, the author of Hebrews talks about this. You see, Peter's embedding throughout this letter, again, that eternal perspective, right? And, and he wants them to see all of this, and he's pointing them to Christ in his sufferings and his eternal living glory. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 13 really does the same, totally in a different way, but he's saying that this system that you've held on to, right, so tightly, so he's writing to a primarily Jewish audience, and he's saying, you found great comfort and hope in this system that happens at the temple, this temple worship that includes the, the sacrifice of animals, right? But he's saying, like, don't cling to that anymore. That is not where your hope and your trust is placed. Instead, look to where Jesus is. He suffered and he gave his life outside of that system, outside of that temple. So look at how he kind of articulates this. And we're going to go to Eugene Peterson's version, which is a trans, uh, is more of a paraphrase of this. So it's in the message, but I just kind of feel like he clearly lays this out. So he says, let's go outside where Jesus is, where the action is, not trying to be privileged insiders, but taking our share in the abuse of Jesus. This insider world is not our home. We have our eyes peeled for the city about to come. Let's take our place outside with Jesus, no longer pouring out the sacrificial blood of animals, but pouring out the sacrificial praises 
from our lips to God in Jesus' name. Make sure that you don't take things for granted or go slack in working for the common good. Share what you have with others. God takes particular pleasure in acts of worship, a different kind of sacrifice. So the author of Hebrews there, right, is, is pointing them towards this same living hope and inheritance that they have in Christ. And that key verse, right, that says that we have no lasting city. Everything about this worldly system is fading and failing. And the author of Hebrews and Peter wants us to, to, to really deeply understand that this is not our home. The way that this world exists today and it's broken, sin-filled existence is not the home that we cherish and long for and look to. And he points them to this, this home or this city that is to come, a city or a home that will not only be eternal, but good. So, so we are to be encouraged that our great hope is not in this world or anything that it has to offer because it is fading, it is perishable, it is defiled. So we look to this eternal hope. Our identity is firmly rooted in it, and yet we still do good and share, right? So listen, it's so common today to chastise the church, to criticize the church as we point people to this longing and looking to its eternal hope. Most of the criticism comes from within the church, right? Because people hear that as a call to complacency. Let's just sit back, watch the thing burn, and just invest all of our hope into what is to come, right? Um, I've even heard followers of Jesus say that it's just simply not enough to point people to this hope because somehow, again, that builds out this complacency in us. Um, it's more important to do than it is to hope. But here's the deal. We're not an either-or people. Like, what does the author of Hebrews do here? He says, invest deeply in this promises of God that you have this lasting home for yourself. But he also says, don't neglect working for the common good. Share what you have with others, right? And so we're not called, once again, to be an either-or people. We're called to be a both and people. And the author of Hebrews, I think, makes that so very clear. It's hope and do. It's not hope or do or do or hope. It's place your hope in this eternal home and get busy about the work that God has us to do, right? So let's just keep jamming. Verse six and seven says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter's telling them here, there's, there's this like great joy, right? An abundance of joy because you've been chosen by God, you've been transformed by his work, and you now have this living hope and this guarantee of an inheritance. And that should anchor you in times of great sorrow and despair, persecution or oppression. It should help you stand firm as you face the ever-increasing pressure to capitulate to the culture of the world. It, it should cause you to be sober-minded, to walk in humility while the world is irrational and violent and proud. To see the circumstances in your life as a testing. Well, a testing of what? Well, Peter describes it as a testing of the genuineness of your faith, which, which those tests 
begin to refine and make stronger. He wants his readers to see that the trials that, that they face or that we face are both temporary and also purposeful. So keep in mind, like they were facing, his original leaders, they were facing this ever-increasing like hateful and hostile environment towards them because of their claims of faith. So they are becoming people who are now victims of religious persecution. There's then this little key in the original language that helps make a little bit more sense of this, right? So the Greek word that Peter uses here for trials is the same Greek word used by Jesus in what most commonly is called the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6.13, Jesus says, as he's teaching his disciples to pray, he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So that word temptation and trials that Peter uses, it's the same Greek word. Now, now remember, why did Peter say that he's writing this in the first place? He said that he's writing this to the, the believers spread throughout Asia Minor to exhort or to encourage them to stand firm in their faith, to remain faithful no matter what their circumstances are. So the trials that they were facing for simply following Jesus are implicitly a temptation to do what? To give in, to renounce their faith right? It's a temptation that's coming their way. Will they stand firm or will they recant? Now, who better than to speak of that than Peter? Like Peter knows that world. Peter walked that path. Peter had a great confession of faith. And then Jesus says, I think you're just Satan, right? And Peter's like, no, 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 no. Like you're the Christ. I'll never deny you. I'll never recant my faith. I promise. And then what does he do? So Peter knows this world and he's encouraging his readers like, do not, I mean, like, like have a good handle on those circumstances and realize that as you walk through those things, they will be a temptation for you to, to give up on your faith. So listen, that's not to say that, that God is throwing trials and circumstances as some sort of like entrance exam to faith. Rather, it's simply that any real and genuine faith will bring trials and temptations, just like it's playing out for the Jesus followers that Peter's writing to, because of their new life in Christ, which reorients them towards a whole new ethic and value system, he's al they're now alienated and exposed them to a, a, a culture and a, and a system that is now foreign to them, which causes them to be victims of persecution of that system and the people that they adhere to. So, the irony that Peter is pointing out is that that same faith that alienates Jesus' Jesus followers from their culture, from their family, from everything else, is also the same faith that gives them everything that they need, this living hope, this inheritance that will endure that temptation or that trial. So in spite of the suffering they face, they're continued to trust in the Father, the Lord of Jesus, that makes them heirs for this inheritance. And then he talks about this process, right? And he talks about the common practice of metallurgy and refining, which I know nothing about, but thanks for Wikipedia, right? So like metal ore is often subjected to like intense heat, right? And that's this refining process. And as it's heated up, It'll, it'll separate out the impurities from the, the pure, valuable metal. And so Peter's saying these, these tests, these circumstances, these trials 
can produce that in you. They can produce a temptation that could lead you away from faith, or they could actually be what refines those temptations out of you, right? And you have this more pure and genuine faith. And if that wasn't clear enough, he goes on, he illustrates that with like the most precious and valuable metal known to his readers, which is gold. And he points to it as something that even gold, with as valuable as it is to you, it will fade, it will perish, it is truly not defiled, right? But, but a part of our faith, which is also tested and refined in the intense heat and flames of suffering and trials, it will stand firm. It will be more precious than the most precious thing in your world. And for what purpose? Well, our faith is being refined so that at the last day, right, at the final consummation of the kingdom of Christ, it will be filled with praise and honor and glory to our great King. There will be nobody that will be standing before Christ when he returns to usher in his kingdom that will not be worshiping him. And Peter is saying that God, God values your faith more than he values your gold or your present comfort or anything. He just desires that you would be a people that would remain faithful. In verse 8, I keep moving here. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you did, do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So one thing that can get a bit missed in all of this, that Peter is emphasizing this like reality, that, that we are currently longing and waiting for the second coming of Christ. So he's writing this after Christ's resurrection and ascension. And, and so for everyday life for Jesus followers is characterized by a faith in a, in a king, a faith in a Lord who is invisible and not present. So Peter had walked and talked and shared all of these like unbelievable experiences with Jesus like firsthand, but for the readers that he's writing to, they simply, this was not the case. He, he sees, right? And, 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 and he's heard and he emphasizes the love that they have for their Savior despite never having met Jesus. And like, how much more is that true for us today? Like if anybody out there, like if you've actually met the living Jesus, all right, but we're, we're, it feels like we, we are so much more removed from that reality. Like Jesus's life on earth, it's been a couple thousands like, you know, like of years. And, and so there's this like curious little interaction that happens between Jesus um, in, the, in the Gospels, in John's Gospel, and it's between Jesus and this guy Thomas. Thomas wasn't one of the first disciples to see Jesus post-resurrection, and so he's curious. He's hearing all of this, and he's like, I don't know. This sounds crazy. He doesn't have a category for a person that's dead and now alive, and he's really not that unreasonable, and he says, listen, like the only way that I'm going to believe that Jesus actually walked out of a tomb, which is what some of you are claiming right now, is if I see Jesus, right? He says, like, he famously says, at least I, unless I see Jesus and I can, like, start putting my fingers in the holes in his hands and in his feet, I, I won't believe, right? I, I just refuse to believe that he's alive, and, and he's not crazy for that. So Jesus then, as he's standing before Thomas, says this to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So first Jesus is saying that the reality is this, there's no hierarchy in his kingdom. There's like no hipster followers of Jesus, like I was following Jesus long before you were, 
Everyone, whether they see him or not, is blessed. What are they blessed with? That same living hope, that same inheritance, that same joy, because that's the tools that will help you navigate this often oppressive and brutal world. In verse 9, we're actually going to end in verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So that's how we kind of dovetail into this, like, I think this inheritance, I believe, is this completion of your salvation, right? So the word that he uses, once again, for salvation is this Greek word, soteria. It's where we get the word soteriology, which is the study of salvation. And we, we said earlier, like in its broad context, it would have just meant deliverance from physical danger or disease, but then also sin. So, so I think Peter is pointing his readers here to the completion of their salvation. And this gets a little techie in how this all kind of unfolds. So let me just do this. I'm going to read this quote from Karen Jobes in her commentary. She's just much smarter than I am, and she just nails this down in a way that I think hopefully makes so much sense and wraps this whole thing up in some ways. So she says, In 1 Peter, the benefits of the new birth are a present reality, but salvation is yet to be revealed at the end of history. Peter's teaching presents a good corrective to the popular thought that at death, Christians go up to heaven to receive their full and final reward. Peter presents salvation as fully attained only at the final judgment at the end of history when Jesus Christ is revealed. Therefore, in Peter's thought, salvation refers to the ultimate deliverance that is the final goal of redemptive history in which believers in Christ will partake. It is the deliverance from this current state of existence as foreigners in a world hostile to God and into a place of existence in which there will be no such dissonance. Christians are sure to attain to this final state of existence because they have been spiritually born into it through the resurrection of Christ. For Peter, salvation is the coming inheritance to which they are now fully entitled, but do not yet fully possess. In some ways, like I could have just read that. That was the sermon. Like She just encapsulates everything that I probably took 40 minutes to say in that paragraph. Here's what we need to see. In the end, what Peter's encouraging his readers to, to truly understand here and these like kind of opening verses is that at the end of time, and he's pointing them to the second coming of Christ, right? At the end of time, like, they will no longer be foreigners here. They, they will be fully realized citizens of the kingdom of God, and that begins here and now as they like participate in the already and not yet kingdom of God. And they will see a day when the kingdom of God will come in its completeness, in its fullness, in its final state that's in the future. And they do that by allowing their current life of faith in God to be informed, determined, and animated by the unseen reality that they have been born or reborn into. So what that means is that their understanding of their identity their understanding of how they conduct themselves, of how they engage culture, politics, family, work, really everything can simply no longer be shaped and governed by the earthly society and culture that they live in. They, they no longer belong to that system. Their allegiance is now to the society and the culture of God's kingdom. And all I have simply for you today as we end, is a question. Church, how are we doing with that today? Like, how are we doing with that today? Are we sober-minded in a hostile world? Have we armed up? Have we fought culture wars that we are never called to fight? Are we living today 
as Christ is our living hope, we've received this inheritance from him. I'm not going to answer it for you. Like every one of you have to pull back this week and answer that question. You as the church, how are you doing? Have you given yourself into deep anxiousness and fear when God has called us to be encouraged in this living hope that we have? Church, how are we doing with that?